I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending August 16th. Photonics. It's not just for fiber optics anymore. In this episode, we've got a discussion about photonics, quantum sensors, and the potential for an all-optical computer. Broadcom bought Symantec last week. We asked editor Rick Merritt, why on earth a chip company would want to get into the market for business software? Over the years, the EDA industry has developed some marvelously sophisticated tools for testing and verifying the designs of highly complex integrated circuits. This week, we have an interview with the CEO of a startup, a company that has its roots in EDA, about the tools it has developed to improve the testing process for autonomous vehicles. The tools will help AV companies determine if they're testing what they think they're testing. The autonomous vehicle industry is reporting the number of miles driven, number of miles driven physically on the streets, a number of miles driven virtually in simulation. In fact, when you look at number of miles, do you know when we are done? Is it after 10 million miles or 11 or maybe 100 million miles or a billion miles? It's just not a good metric to know when you are done. We'll get back to autonomous vehicles in a moment. First up today, companies seem to make a big deal about focusing on their core businesses. And then last week, chip vendor Broadcom bought Symantec which produces business software. I'm not seeing a core here. In fact, we might be outside the orchard on this one. Rick Merritt covered the acquisition for EE Times. International editor Junko Yoshida caught up with him to find out what's going on here. So what's behind Broadcom's decision to buy Symantec? Like any company's chief executive, Hak Tan just wants to grow his company, Broadcom, into the biggest company he possibly can. What's different in this case is his philosophy of how to do that. Why is it a good idea for Broadcom to have Symantec under its roof? Tan makes what's a pretty compelling point that now that he can no longer grow his chip company into a bigger chip company uh, after his attempt to acquire uh, Qualcomm and NXP was nixed, he wants to grow a different kind of company, a chip company that also has a software company in it. And, and he makes a good point that there's always going to be a whole lot more end users that need to buy software licenses for key infrastructure like security than there are going to be OEMs who want to buy chips. So it's, it's a potentially much larger total available market than any of his competitors will have. As you noted in your own story, Intel acquired McAfee but sold it. Intel also bought Wind River but then sold it to earlier this year. The combination of a chip giant and software companies didn't work out. But is that because Intel was being Intel? Is Broadcom another story? Does Broadcom have a strategy to make this work? If so, how? After a time, it became clear that the kind of synergies that Intel was seeking just weren't there, and Intel spun it out again. This time around, Haktan wouldn't come out and say as much in the conference call that he gave, but the implication he gave was that he's not really looking for synergies with software helping enable new kinds of chips. Uh, he's just trying to create a separate software business to a separate end-user clientele, and, and that's going to make his business grow, he thinks, by $2 billion of revenue as soon as the deal closes. So I think Wall Street's buying it. 
Rick's story on Broadcom's acquisition is on the website. This week, European correspondent Nitin Dahad filed a story that covered two R&D developments, both involving photonics. The research is all very preliminary, but the first project points toward what they're calling quantum sensors. The second involves the construction of nanoscale photodiodes, which in turn suggests the possibility of the construction of processors that use light instead of electrons. It's all rather esoteric, so Junko asked Nitin to begin at the beginning. I'd like to cover the fundamentals first. I've always thought that main application for optical circuits is in the area of fiber optic communications. But beyond that, I'm clueless. Nitin, please explain why we should care about photonics IC. I must admit I'm not an optical circuits expert either, but uh, I was chairman of the Centre for Integrated Photonics in the UK a few years ago when we sold it to Huawei, so I have a little bit of knowledge. Um, Coming back to answering your question, why should we care? The simplest way to look at it is this. Photonics technology uses light or photons instead of electrons to carry information. Uh, When you think about it, photons traveling at the speed of light within optical circuits potentially means much faster data transmission and much less energy consumed. Wow. So think about the implications for that, especially when we we in our industry are constantly feeling challenged by the boundaries of ever-shrinking process technologies, uh, Moore's Law, the data bandwidth limitations. Yep. So for all the brain-like computers and neuromorphic computing, Uh, An all-optical chip could be the answer to mimicking neurons and attaining the interconnectivity and efficiency of the brain. In the story, you cited two recent optical advancements made in labs independently by two institutions. Hmm. One was Technical University of Munich, and another is uh, Stanford University, I think. What are the most notable things discovered by each research? So I think the advances are both fascinating and significant. And by the way, they're no means the only work going on in this area, as many research institutes are probably working in it. It's just that, uh, yeah, these two came to my attention because they made a noise about it. And uh, that's the point. So the point of the photonics developments, uh, both of them, is, is all around how you insert and manipulate light sources. So coming to the Technical University of Munich, Uh, They led a group of scientists from Germany, the US and Japan to actually put light sources into nanoscale semiconductor materials uh, with great accuracy, just a few nanometers, using a specialist helium ion microscope to irradiate the material uh, with precision. Now, now this is an experimental gateway to integrating quantum light sources into photon circuits. Uh, So it'll enable things like quantum sensors to be built into smartphones, or, you know, we talk about um, IoT security, you know, secure encryption for data transmission. Wow. And then at Stanford University, uh, researchers actually designed a nanoscale photon diode and created all the necessary nanostructures and light sources to help bring their photon diode to life. At this stage, I think they've just modeled it and done the calculations. Uh, what I've understood is they figured out how to manipulate light in both directions in a light-based diode. Mm -hmm. So they create the light rotation in a crystal using another light beam rather than a magnetic field. What that means is uh, the diode doesn't have to be so large, so then it can be integrated into small components. Gotcha. Uh, One of the grand visions stated by the researchers is to have 
an all optical computer where electricity is replaced by completely by light and photons, which drives all the information processing, which is what you said at the beginning. The increased speed and bandwidth of, of light would then enable faster solutions to some of the hardest scientific, mathematical, and economic problems. But how far are we from the future of this all optical computer you just talked about? You know, the um, supposedly electricity is replaced by light and photons drive all information processing. When are we going to have that? And what are the challenges? Well, this is really hard to tell. Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything from the two teams to indicate timescales. When you think about it, you know, I guess one of the challenges is how to fabricate all optical gates or all optical logic components. Yep. Uh, and, and to give you an idea, I, I, uh, while researching this, I saw a paper from Alto University in Finland from last year, how they described um, the development of nanowire networks that can perform uh, binary logic functions such as AND or NAND and NOR. Mm-hmm. So I guess we're probably still, you know, if, if we say five years away at least uh, from doing something like that. But who knows, you know, they say necessity is a mother invention. And if an IBM or an Intel or even one of the hyperscaler companies we talked about recently uh, put enough money behind it, it may just be sooner than we think. Let's hope so. Thanks, Nitin. Thank you, Junko. That was Junko Yoshida with Nitin Dahad, who called in from London. You can read Nitin's story on eetimes.com. It's called Optical Advances Pave Way for Quantum Sensors and Computing. Autonomous vehicle companies have been testing driverless vehicles on the road, of course. But they're also putting their autonomous driving systems through driving simulations. Doing both, real-world testing and simulations, is a tried-and-true method for product safety. The problem with simulations for self-driving vehicles, however, start with the fact that there are no standard tests for driving scenarios used in simulations. There aren't even any standard metrics with which you could make standard tests. Furthermore, every AV company considers its test data to be proprietary. AV companies boast that they've driven millions of simulated miles, which is good, but nobody has any idea if any of those simulations are of any use, which is bad, really bad, because it creates a false sense of safety. Last week, international editor Junko Yoshida got an exclusive interview with Fortelix, a startup company in Israel that provides a tool to measure test coverage for AV developers. Fortelix asks the question, are simulations covering the functions that they're supposed to cover? The company's tools are used to answer the question. Here's Junko with the CEO of Fortelix, Ziv Binyanmini. As autonomous vehicles companies are racking up more miles in public roads, in our recent chat, you made a point that this shouldn't be about quantity of miles, but it should be about quality of coverage. Let's start from there. What did you mean by quality of coverage? So we have to ask, first of all, you know, the autonomous vehicle industry is reporting the number of miles driven, number of miles driven physically on the streets, and number of miles um, driven virtually in simulation. And, you know, they've already done millions of miles and maybe billions of miles virtually. But you have to ask yourself, what have they actually done? What have they actually simulated? Did they look 
at you know simulation did they drive in the rain did they drive with pedestrians and the combination of this um, in fact when you look at number of miles do you know when we are done is it after 10 million miles or 11 or maybe a hundred million miles or a billion miles it's just not a good metric to know when you are done and So when we're talking about autonomous vehicle, we're also talking about something that is not controllable. We cannot tell the autonomous vehicle what to do. So we can just say, uh, we're going to test this and this is what's going to happen. It may do whatever it chooses to do because it's autonomous. So the coverage approach allows you to actually define metrics, all of the scenarios and the parameters, the millions of them, and measure them independently of whatever the platform is and whatever the test intent is to actually see what actually happened and aggregate it into a common result. My second question is that, um, you know, safety is obviously the foremost concern for designers of uh, autonomous vehicles or advanced driver assist- assistance systems, ADAS systems. But um, how they actually measure safety is a big question, right? So tell us what you're proposing here. So first of all, we are building on top of existing uh, uh, work. There are standards being created like SOTIF and UL4600 um, that are being defined. Uh, but what is missing and what I think our key contribution to the topic of taste, safety is measurable safety. So... You want to be able to do all of the argumentation, all of the preparations, but we need a way to know what have been tested, what scenarios have been exercised. Um, have you exercised all of the possibilities? Have you been able to find all of the unknown risks? And our coverage measurement approach is enabling us to actually provide um, a way to provide these metrics, okay? So it's a measurable, quantifiable approach that complement the other me- methods. The other point I want to make is this method is not an external effort that, uh, that is a, another burden on the autonomous vehicle developer. It is part of the development process. You use the same process to find the bugs, to define the next steps, and then to reach your definition of done. So it's both serve the safety and the actual process of making itself safe. Right. Okay, so that I think you described it during our interview, something called measurable scenario description language. I think you call it M-SDL. Is that correct? Correct. That's what uh, your company has developed. Now, my understanding is that uh, you have grown up In the EDA world with your eyes focused on verification so I want you to explain you know connections or commonalities in principles between measurable scenario description language and things like system verilog a standard language used for verification in the chip design world right so yeah we came uh, the, the founders of Fortelix uh, origins are in the chip industry we actually come from companies like National Semiconductor and Intel and then uh, moved into EDA to uh, define the solutions over there uh, and provide them to the whole industry 
there's at a high level the similarity is uh, very um, very similar in two aspects one it's the very high level of complexity at scale mm-hmm. these systems you know a system on a chip or a microprocessor microprocessor is incredibly complex and it needs to be manufactured in scale it's not a one off you have to create millions and millions of these devices right the other thing is the cost of failure the cost of failure in the chip industry is because once you commit to silicon you cannot fix any bug you have to throw away silicon and redo the whole thing we call it respins the cost are in tens of millions of dollars correct or the obvious cost when you look at the autonomous vehicle industry complexity is even harder it's even higher and the cost of failure is very obvious right it's life of people and business uh, businesses that will not be safe will not be able to so that's why we thought that the approach that we have developed on the chip industry in the EDA side can be applied here now the concepts are very similar and there are a lot of concepts that are being brought already one is the need for large scale simulation ah. in the chip industry people run hundred you know millions of simulations the autonomous vehicle industry actually there was some debate on this a few years ago i think now everybody realized that it has to be large scale simulation in in addition to other platform i'll mention that mm. two is the need for a high level verification language in the case in the chip industry there are several of these like the e language that we created and system verilog and portable stimuli spec that were just released uh, recently these are all high level verification languages we are coming up with a similar similarly with a domain specific language measurable scenario description language for autonomous vehicles enadas other key concepts are the need for constraint random so the ability to generate many many different tests randomly within constraints mm-hmm. to look after unknown and unexpected bugs and unconsidered combinations and the other is the concept of coverage the ability to define coverage and then measure objectively what you've actually tested because in the chip industry also we are talking about millions of coverage points and we also talk about while it's not autonomous it is extremely hard to control it is extremely hard to create the conditions that you want within a very deep microprocessor so and the last concept that is very similar is the need for this language to work to be portable across multiple testing platforms like street driving like simulation like test tracks etc got it so i guess um the, the you mentioned several languages are actually being used high level languages used for the uh the uh chip world but is fortelix the only company your company is the only company developing such a language for designing autonomous vehicles will there be more than one language so there are um I would hope that we are the most advanced because of our vast experience um but there are several other attempts to create scenario description languages and there is actually a standardization process going on within the ASAM organization that is trying to come up with a standard language um and the industry hope is that you know a single standard will emerge that everybody will be able to use uh so that there is a standard scenario description language that, that is you know people can exchange and share uh these uh, scenario specifications 
But you said that uh, this um, uh, your high level language uh, will be made available uh, to the public, available in GitHub. When? In a few months, we are actually working right now to collect uh, feedback from some of our um, partners, and um, we're going to release it to a few more partners soon. And then uh, after the summer. We are going to once we get all of the feedback, we consolidate it, we in, in, um, integrate it into our current specification. We are going to open the language MSDL and put it um, on GitHub, as you said. All right, very good. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Check out Junko's story on Fortelix on the website. It's called EDA and AVs find a common language. And now, Sherman, if you'll step into the Wayback Machine. We've got it set for August 12th, 1981, when IBM introduced the first IBM PC, the Model 5150. It was built around a blazing fast 4.77 megahertz Intel 8088 and ran Microsoft's MS-DOS. IMAX, do you remember floppy disks? Also on August 12th, this time in 1908, the first Model T came off the production line at Ford Motor Company. Assembly line production helped Ford cut costs and sell cars for less than anyone else. Twelve years later, roughly half the cars on the road in the U.S. were Model Ts. On August 11th in 1888, Edison's phonograph was demonstrated in London for the first time. Now, it had been demonstrated before at home in the U.S., but the London debut is notable because one of the very first musical recordings ever made, that we still have a copy of, was played during the event. It was Arthur Sullivan's composition, The Lost Chord. What you're listening to is that very recording. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending August 16th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to. We'll have a new episode on the 23rd. Look for it on our website, or you can find it on Spotify, on iTunes, and on Blueberry, and anywhere else fine podcasts are found. This is EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santow.